Bill Vogler is back east getting to baptize one of his grandchildren, which is really, really great. Believe me, if you've never got to baptize little babies, it's so cool, especially if it's your, if it's your grandbaby. So uh, pray for Karen and Bill as they're back there. And, and we have the privilege to hear again uh, from our brother, Rick Pratt. Rick, please come and bring the word of God to us. Thanks, Dave. I was uh, talking to Bill about heading back to Pittsburgh, and he's going to do the baptism. And I said, oh, you're going to get a, a week off also. He said, no, I'm going to preach also there. So, you know, Bill, he's preaching wherever he is uh, back in, in Pittsburgh. But it's a privilege to be able to come this morning and, and uh, be able to preach this morning, bring the word. So let's pray. Let's go before our Lord. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, that, that as we've sung about your greatness, about your control, about your beauty, um, about your blessing, that uh, this morning, that you would remind us of that truth, that we stand here today uh, secure as yours, and the only secure place to stand is in you, and that all things that we would prop our lives up with around us on the outside are, are there in their gifts, but they are not the things that uphold us. It's ultimately you and who you are. And so we come as your people today in great need of that reminder and great need of, of that perspective that we cling to you for this security and forgive us for the ways that we hold on or look to those things or claim strengthen those things that really are not strength at all. Continue to remind us of that this morning. Tie us to You. Take the truth of who You are and continue to sink it deep into our lives so that we would be people who both profess and live out and experience the truth of the God who is infinite and holy and good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, um, we, this is kind of one of those strange, we're kind of right in the middle of, of the entire uh, narrative here, and we're, we've been studying this book on our Monday morning Bible studies, and it's just been a great time, really a rich time working through this growth of the, of the early church, and when Bill had asked me to preach, and I always kind of have to select a text, and we had been through this one, and it's been just an interesting one for me. I've just really enjoyed going through it, but this one in particular. What's interesting about this, I'll mention this as we get, as we get into it, is that Luke has selected chapter this 12, this text from 1 to 24. It's interesting that it's out of sync chronologically, that he actually has moved it in the chronology of his history. He's moved it from really the middle part of chapter 11, and he's moved it to this. It should be taking place a couple years earlier, but he's moved it here and he's moved it on purpose. It's not that he just had a whim, but he wants to frame something for us. If you know anything about the, the biblical histories, is that they're framed in a certain kind of way, that the author uses the truth of history, what really took place in time and space, and he frames it in a way to teach us about God, to show us about Him and how it is that He operates. And so He has moved chapter 12. He's put it in this place because it marks 
the end and in the beginning of a new mission that's going to take place in chapter 13. It's broken down these sections. If you know that Acts is the second part of a two-part work by Luke, that Luke, his gospels of the, the teaching of tells us the account of Christ before he was taken up, before he ascended, his words, his teaching, his actions, his life, his death, his resurrection. And then the book of Acts is the account of the early church, but it's really account of what Christ continued to do while he was ascended to the Father at the right hand of the Father, what he is doing in and through his church, even now and through today. And so that's what this count is about. And as we come to this particular one in, in chapter 12, we see persecution that's taken place in the church of Jerusalem. And Luke wants to give us a picture of this so we can read through 1 through 24 of chapter 12 of Acts. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And we saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. But when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. Centuries before the door were guarding the prison, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter in the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done, that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to an iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her, joy, she, she, um, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said... Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had happened to Peter, what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down to Judea, from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him. With one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. 
On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration. The voice of God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms, breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The word of God. What an incredible story that we have here. And as we look at this, John Stott says that when we read Acts, we should read Acts with it in one hand, and we should read the book of Revelation in the other. That we should look at Acts as a, an account of what's happening from an earthly perspective, on the ground here from what our eyes can see and can be recorded in this kind of history. But he said that we should also see, we should read it through the lens of the book of Revelation. That as we see it through that lens, we see that there's a battle ensuing. Not just an earthly battle, not just a political battle, but a spiritual battle. And the spiritual forces that are imposing the will of God, seeking to undermine His work. And so we understand through the lens of Revelation, what's happening here is not just a political situation, but it's a spiritual one. It is an enemy who decides or desires to destroy the work of Christ in the building of His church. And as Luke authors this, he puts this together, he wants to put on display this movement of the church. It's a narrative throughout from the church in Jerusalem where to where it ends this account in where Paul is in house arrest in Rome. And so we have this, this growth of the church from Jerusalem in the first seven or eight chapters, Judea and Samaria, and then Chapters 8, really, through the end of our section here, is the growth of the areas outside of Jerusalem and Judea and Caesarea and Syria just north and Phoenicia and Cyprus and the area around there. It's beginning to grow. But now at this point, it's going to explode as Paul is getting ready to be sent out on his missionary journeys in chapter 13. And it grows from there to, the, to Galatia and the others, Macedonia and Achaia, modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor, those kinds of places, it begins to grow. And in the end, we find Paul is under house arrest in Rome. And there we find him. So it's this growth of the church throughout the, the world. And that's the, that's the outline of the book. We see it traced there. But the key phrase that marks the growth, that marks the, for us as readers what's happening, and when it prepares the reader for what Luke intends to do in terms of further movement of the church, is the key phrase at the very end of our section that we looked at, but the Word of God increased and multiplied. That we have an increase and there's a growing here that the Word of God was growing. And when you read that, it should tell you something that we're about ready to take a shift and we look back at the event that was immediately pre preceded that and then we look forward to see what God was intending to do and we see further growth. And it's a statement that is very important for us. It marks these sections for us. Connects, if you will, the immediate story, the immediate narrative with the broader one. Because we have smaller accounts, but the smaller accounts are connected to something that God is doing. And it's important for us to understand both, to see both the smaller narrative, the immediate, the local story, as well as the broad one, the narrative that God is writing, that it's a part of that. Because if we just look at the smaller one, we might miss the larger one. We would miss what God is doing even though our eyes might not be able to see it. But if we look at the larger one and, and to the exclusion of the smaller one, we might miss the point that God is using 
our local stories, our immediate events and accounts and experiences in the building and the growing of his larger story, his larger narrative of what he is doing. So both inform the other. And Luke doesn't, he wants to make sure we get this. There's an account here, but we want to connect this smaller account with the broader one, that God is growing his church, that Christ is on the throne. He is there building his church. The larger story is that it's growing, it's increasing in power as the word goes forward. And there's nothing that will stand in his way, nothing that will thwart his plans, even though this story at the beginning we might wonder. Is something happening now that just might stop or stand in the way of what God intends to do? And from where the story begins and where it ends, we find completely different points in the story of what's happening there. And we will find a reversal. No matter what our eyes might see, nothing will neutralize the plans of God. Nothing will stand in His way. In fact, we'll be brought into His plan and used in His plan if you seek and try to oppose Him. But the smaller, the more immediate narrative here in this account, we see that Christ is working in and through the lives of His people. He's working on a broad scope. He's also working on a local one. He's working in the lives of people to grow them up, to help them understand and know this will and understand what He's doing, both to fulfill His Word in them and through them. They're both recipients of the power of His Word and they're agents of this power as well. And so we see that He is at work in this smaller story as well as in the larger one. We're going to look and keep these both in tension together this morning because they're both important. As we look at this, it reminds us God is in control. He is powerful. We've sung many songs about that. As we look at chapter 12, the author invites us, the divine author invites us into this account and asks the questions. What would it have been like to be there? And what can we learn about what God is doing immediately in their lives and then how that connects with His intentions on a broader scale? They were seeking to be faithful agents of Christ's mission and yet... They didn't have all the particulars. The story wasn't filled in. They were living it out, and yet they didn't know there were gaps between what they thought and what God intended. And so they tried to to work that out, and indeed all of us do. There's a gap between our expectations and God's, and that would make sense. And so the question I want to ask this morning is, what does it look like to seek to live out this truth, this reality of God's sovereign control, and His intentions and mission in this world in in our immediate circumstances of our lives? What's it look like for us to apply the larger story in the context of the smaller one? In the immediate setting of our lives, how does that inform and how does that help us? So we're going to work through that as we look at this account. A little bit of, of, of just kind of overview real quickly on this particular This chapter we see mentioned before, it begins and ends in different places. We see what's happened at the beginning here is that there's an escalation of persecution. Before there had been persecution in in Jerusalem to the church, but it primarily come from the Jewish leaders. But now we have the king himself, Herod himself, who is exacting his rule. He is gathering people. He is killing them. He He is imprisoned Peter. So we have an escalation of persecution. We have a change in policy. We have a change in the real environment in which they were doing their ministry. The landscape had changed radically for them. They had experienced a great deal of freedom and peace over a period of time. And now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it seems that everything has changed. And the king now, for his own political benefit, is 
gathering up Christians, especially the leaders. And he's trying to shut down the church by way of taking the, the leaders of the church and, and executing them. And so we see that's what that's what Herod has done here. This is Herod Agrippa the first, and he is using his political power, which he has relatively unchecked at this point to do that. We see that James is put to death, that Peter is put in prison. He's awaiting his trial. We know he will be executed if he is brought to trial. We have this account, 6 through 11, of this miraculous rescue of Peter. We have this short visit to the house of Mary, which was probably a, a central meeting place, kind of a headquarters for the church in Jerusalem and John Mark's mother, and we learn about him in a little bit. But it's a very short visit. He shows up, and we have this rather descriptive account, right, as he comes to the door, and we're going to talk about that. Why do we have that account? What does it tell us about ourselves? And so we have this short account, and we have that, that Peter then takes off. He probably goes into hiding, says he goes to another place, probably to escape being recaptured and put back in prison, so he takes off. By the way, he's motioning people to be quiet because he doesn't want others to hear of his presence there. He's, he still has his own interest in mind. And then we have them trying to find Peter, and they wake up right in the morning, and the, and the prisoner's gone, and says there's no little disturbance as they're trying to find what became of him. And of course, as they don't find him, then the prisoners or the, the guards who are in charge of him would suffer the same fate, the punishment that he would deserve, and so they're put to death there. Then Herod heads south, heads to Caesarea, back home. But that doesn't end the story. Luke doesn't want to end there. He says, yeah, that takes care of the issue as it relates to the church immediately. But he won't allow it to end there because there's more going on. And in fact, the, the verses 20 through 24 are quite a few months later when this took place of Herod's death. And so we see this proper ending that he wants to display God's control over this situation. So he includes this account of his death. It provides a, provides a fitting conclusion for us. So the question we want to ask is, what's it look like to live out the truth, the reality of God's control in our immediate situations and our stories? And what does it produce in our lives? As we look at this account, there's really three things I'm going to pull out. One, there's, a, there's mystery and confusion as God begins to, as he's working out his plan in their real lives and their situation. Secondly, there's an irony in their response to how God takes care of them. And thirdly, there's a great joy at seeing God show up. First, there's mystery and there's confusion over the events of what God would do. But this confusion, this mystery produces something in their lives. It brings about something that's necessary for them. That brings them to prayer. We see here in this one verses one through five, there's persecution that's there that the King Herod, he's laid violent hands on them. He takes James, the brother of John, he puts him to the sword. What, what we think is going on here is a kind of a test case. You think about Peter, James and John, the kind of the, the trio at the top of the church in Jerusalem. He, Peter at the top and James and John there. What we think is taking place, some do at least, is that. That, that what Herod is doing is kind of saying, I'm going to take not the top guy, but maybe one of the top guys. I'm going to, going to take him and put him to death. And I'm going to see what this does for me politically. He's going to test his political waters. He has an interest in certainly the Jewish faith himself. He's committed to them, and certainly politically he is, to, to keep them on his side, the Jews. And so he takes James and he puts him to death. 
And he says, oh, wow, this works well for me. It says it pleased the Jews. And so he proceeds to arrest Peter. And so James, really on a political whim to kind of test the political waters, is put to death. We find that it's during this, these days of unleavened bread, just before the Passover, that this is taking place. And so he waits until the trial, till after that. And of course, this language with Herod and trials and Passover and unleavened bread and executions should be reminiscent of us, of Luke's gospel and other gospels, of what's taking place as he paints the picture for us. This should not be terribly comfortable for the reader to, to think maybe what might happen from here. And it's this church in this in, in Jerusalem, it's experiencing real uh, reality of this. To have this king suddenly turn on them. All of a sudden, to take and begin to put the leadership of the church to death, virtually autonomous power, on a political whim to decide to do this. So if you think, you put yourself in the shoes of the church. In Jerusalem, they have your leadership taken, killed. The leader, the top leaders to be put to death there. What would you do? How would you respond? There's real mourning, right? There's real death. Someone has died. A leader in the church has been executed. There's real grief. There's real confusion. There's real fear. What's going to happen? Is this a, a real shift in the change in the climate? Are we going to have to go underground now? What's going to happen? There's real fear. There's real powerlessness. They're bewildered. There's a disillusionment here. What's going to happen? How are we going to live? How are we going to do this? How are the authorities now going to respond to us? So from relative peace and freedom now, we have this complete change in this. And by the way, they don't have a congressman to call. They don't have an attorney to call. They don't have a civil rights agency, action agency to call to help them. What the king wants to do, the king will do. He'll put to death who he wants, when he wants, and how he wants. They have no recourse. He is dangerous. On a human level, we see that this is real. This is the experience. This is the situation that they find themselves in. As we see that James is killed, we find... There's no commentary on his death except he was put to death by the sword. He's killed, and then we move on. And he takes Peter. He was just executed. There it is. There's no miraculous rescue. There's no angel that leads James out. There's not even a providence that steps in to stay the king's hand. He is just killed. He is executed. The story ends there for James' life. We go, okay, whoa, what's happening here? He was put to death. You know, we love the stories of supernatural release, of, of rescue. We love 6 through 11, and it's incredible to read and see God at work there. But we're not sure what to do with verses 1 through 5 when just people are taken and, and killed for no reason whatsoever. We wonder, God, have you really stepped in here? What, what's going on? He's simply put to death. We love those stories. And our theology can encompass those. We Love that. It makes sense to us. What doesn't make sense? What we have to wrestle through. Where our theology, our truth, our understanding of who God is has to go deeper is when the outcome isn't what we expected. And especially when we have the two side by side, we have a death with a supernatural rescue sitting side by side. A theology has to go deeper. It's a situation where it appears that God is absent. But we have both of these. We have to deal with that. We must learn how to deal with these situations. We must learn to mourn the loss because it's real. And yet if we look at our immediate story, 
It seems like we've missed something. It seems that God has fallen asleep at the world. It seems by my appearances that this outcome isn't exactly the way I would have scripted it, and it's difficult. And so we have to have the larger story to inform the smaller one. It's interesting, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, the faith chapter, if you'll turn there with me real quick, Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 32. In this, the conclusion to this faith chapter, we have faith being exercised by people. And the author wants to catch this in two different ways. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel, the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. We love that kind of faith. But jump down to 36. By faith, though, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves and earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. You see, same faith, two different outcomes, same purpose. Same faith produces, in one case, life, rescue, power, victorious rescue, God's presence seen in and through their lives. Faith produces on the other end death by the sword, sawn in two. Outcomes not what they predicted. Stories that they wouldn't have written, but stories nonetheless that God did. Unified purpose of God in and through His plan by faith. Both juxtaposition set side by side there. Victory, defeat apparently that's there. So there's real mystery here. It's confusing. And of course, those in the church and we today say the same thing. I didn't see that coming. That's not the way I expected this to happen. That's not the way I would have scripted the outcome of this. I certainly wouldn't put these two back to back. And yet as a church, we do both. We see victory, we see wonderful things, and we see tragic things sit side by side. And we have to make sense of them. Matt Carney is a, a, an artist, singer that I, I enjoy of some note. And he's got a song called Closer to Love. I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry. But here's the opening lyrics to that song. He writes this in his song. He says, she got the call today, one out of the gray. And when the smoke cleared, it took her breath away. She said she didn't believe it could happen to me. I guess we're all one phone call from our knees. There were all one moment from something tragic that would take place that we wouldn't have scripted into our story. So the question is, how do we do this? How do we look at this situation, juxtapose with this rescue and live in the midst of it? The mystery, the tragedy, the confusion. What do we do as a church? How do we get to this point and we see here the end of this section What did the church do? How did they make sense of it in verse 5? So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God 
for the church. They prayed. Earnest prayer. They gathered before God and said, we can't make sense of this. Only you have the story. You have to inform our narrative. You have to tell us what to do, how to respond. And when this happens, as we come before Him to deal with tragedy and rescue alike side by side, this is in the time when what happens is our theology, our understanding of who God is, deepens. And it moves beyond people who just recite the truth, but who begin to have the truth woven into the fabric of our lives, into the fabric of our soul. To say, I know this is true, but now, in and through prayer, in the circumstance I find myself, I have to live this out and make sense by God's grace. And it's by prayer that that makes sense. Side by side, victory, rescue, God's extraordinary presence and tragedy and mystery and confusion. And it weaves the truth of God into our soul of who He is in the midst of those. And so they prayed earnestly. And that makes sense, right? Here it is. James, kind of second in command, is taken. And then Peter, he's killed. And they, get, they take Peter, the first in command. I was thinking, you know, let me just play this game where you know, authorities come in and they take me and they put me to the sword. And you go, well, that's a bummer about Rick. That's, that's too bad. But then they come and get Bill, right? They got Bill. Whoa, what are we going to do? We better pray. That's exactly what they did. They sought then to pray. Of course, they prayed for James. But not much time, it seems, had elapsed there. What were they praying for? We're not sure. But it's in the midst of mystery that we see. That's how we live it out. The confusing nature of this. We live it out. Praying and God takes that and deepens our understanding of who He is. Well, the second thing we see in this story, what can we learn as we seek to, to live out the truth of God's control his intentions in our lives and our circumstance. I'm going to jump over the rescue just for a minute because the storyline, I want to jump to the church that's praying. Jump to verse 13 and we see here this account. And what we find here is an irony in their response to the answer to their prayer. It's ironic their response to the answer to the very thing they were praying for, right? And I hope he chuckled on the inside or the outside when we read about that account. When Rhoda open, you know, comes to the door and says, it's, it's Peter, and they're saying, you're nuts. You're crazy. It's his angel. What does that mean? I don't know. But it didn't fit their circumstances. Here's a description. Here's a, a, a definition of irony. Okay, I had to look it up. Irony is a situation that is strange or funny because the things happen in a way that seem to be opposite of what you expect. Right? It's funny because... You're praying for Peter to be released, we would guess, and yet you won't open the door to let him in. That's ironic that you would not do that. That is funny. Why is it funny? Because we see ourselves right there in the middle of that situation. It's ironic because we go, wait, this doesn't seem to fit, but it's a real situation. They're praying for God to intervene, to protect, to rescue to answer their prayer, and yet they won't answer the door to bring him in. So what do we make of this account? What's interesting, right, as you think about the history that Luke is writing, you would say this account is unnecessary. In fact, if I'm there, I would say, Luke, can you just kind of, you know, kind of just scratch that? I'd rather you not have that in there. That doesn't look so well about the church there in Jerusalem. But he puts it in there for a reason. It's not necessary. If this account is just about 
their miraculous rescue of Peter, then that's not necessary. But you see, this account isn't just about the miraculous rescue of Peter. It's about the church in Jerusalem. It's about Christ building and growing his church in Jerusalem. And for that reason, this account is necessary. This funny, quirky, ironic account is necessary for us. It also marks an authentic kind of historical account that it would be in there. It would have that. We're not sure exactly what they were praying for, but needless to say, the outcome didn't quite fit their expectations. If we consider the situation, we're not sure what we'd be praying for either, or how we'd be praying, or what kind of words we'd be using. Certainly confusing there. We see the, the, the security with which he was held. We see James's death that's there. And perhaps it's too much to pray that he would be released. Perhaps it's too much to pray. We know God could, but, but would he? After seeing that, ordaining the death of James, would he do that? I'm not sure how to make sense of this. So there is a gap between their expectations and God's, and that makes sense. Since we are finite, he is infinite. As a friend of mine says, what about unfathomable? Don't you understand? You see, prayer like this, in these moments of time, their prayer was far from perfect prayer. Right. There wasn't even sure there's there's unbelief woven into even the very words they were praying. And as as we see in their response, there's humility there. There's ignorance in their prayer. There's an openness. What are you going to do? There's confusion. They're unsure. I would guess struggling with doubt. Yet in one respect, this is the only kind of prayer we get to offer. We don't have the particulars filled in. We don't even know how to pray. And yet we pray. We say, God, will you use these prayers in the way that you would choose? It's this kind of prayer, humble, ignorance, kind of finding words. What do you want to do in the situation? It's in those moments that we see it's this kind of prayer that pleases God. Not perfect prayer that has it all together. It's prayer that says, I don't know what to say, that pleases God. And it's through this kind of prayer that God accomplishes his plans And it's in the midst of this prayer that we become the kind of people that he wants us to be, that we grow in the midst of the situation. Our theology becomes real in our lives as we wrestle through this. Pleases God. It accomplishes his plans and it causes us to grow and shapes us. You see, there are no weak prayers. There are only weak people. There are no finite prayers. There are only finite people. And as the finite meets the infinite, it would make sense that we don't understand what he's doing. And so there's an irony in the way we live this out. And he is gracious to us and says, your prayers have power, whether they're perfect or not. Your prayers have power as they come to me. And it will tie your story into the larger story. And so we look at the story, we get to laugh with them. We get to laugh at them, but not critically, not condescendingly. Why? Because we see ourselves right there, surprised at how God answers our own prayers. These are not flat characters. These are real people just like we are. And so we must laugh and learn and grow together. And so there's an irony in this account that teaches us something about what it means to pray in the midst of this gap between our expectations and God. Between our story, the small narrative, and the big one. And to ask God to fill that in as He would 
in the way that he would choose. Thirdly, we look at this account. What do we learn? There's a mystery and confusion. And it grows earnest prayer and it deepens theology. There's an irony as the finite intercedes to the infinite. And we grow and we learn about him and us and his story. But thirdly, we get to see him work. We get to see God at work in supernatural ways. In ways, guess what? This account of rescue is something only God could do. But he could only do it. Let me tie this together, which is a phrase I don't even quite get. He accomplished it on the prayers of those of the church. He's going to bring about this rescue, but the rescue is connected to the praying of the people. Verse 6 through 11, we have this account of this rescue. And we see God's fingerprints all over it, of course. We see that it emphasizes the way that, that Luke frames this particular account is that we see that, 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 that the security that Peter is under. It's emphasized. He's got four squads guarding him through the four, four men, four squads through the four watches of the night. He's got a guard on either side of him that he's sleeping around, sleeping with, next to. Doesn't sound so good. And then, uh, then he had, he had the, the chains on him, two chains. And then, if that wasn't bad enough, there was one gate and another gate and centuries behind, in front of those gates. And then there was a final gate that they would have to get out of the prison itself to find its way, its way into the city. We see here the, the description that's interesting. Again, that's the case, that, that he is virtually, he doesn't know if it's happening or not. It's like a vision to him. It's not until he gets out that he goes, oh, wait, this really happened. In fact, the, the angel has to tell him to get dressed, put your clothes on, get ready. We're leaving. He has to kind of hit him to wake up, you know. We're going to go. We're getting out of here. And you even see, right, the gate. It opens of its own accord. Wouldn't you like to see that's a great movie, right? Would you love to see that? It just opens. Now, it's interesting. We could spend more time on this. I won't. There's all kinds of imagery in this rescue that mimics that echoes the rescue of God, of his people from the ex- in the exodus from Egypt. That we have powerlessness and helplessness. We even have instructions on how to get dressed, to get ready for the departure. We have miraculous things opening up of their own accord. We have people passing through their captors free and without any restraint whatsoever. And we have those who oppose them because of their own arrogance struck down by God Himself. In fact, when we get to the end of the chapter, there's a word that the angel of the Lord strikes Herod down. Is the exact same word that's used in the Greek Old Testament in the striking down of the firstborn. And so we have all this imagery of, guess what? How God rescues. His power, His way, His timing, His plan. So we see this incredible situation with God's fingerprints all over it. It's an impossible situation that he must intervene. No one else can. Only God can. It's through the prayers of the people he does that. By the way, Peter's in prison probably for a week to ten days. Okay, through the, the unloved, Feast of Unloving Bread. He's in prison for this period of time, but it tells us the night before he's to be brought out to trial is when we have this rescue. Could have rescued him at any point in time. God chooses, selects exactly the moment he desires and the way and the means he desires to bring him out, to rescue him. God's timing, his methods, his approaches are his ways, his times perfectly to bring about 
to display His glory. And so you see here as we look at this miraculous account that He is at work, that God is bringing about. And we get to see that. They get to celebrate that. And they got to be a part of it in and through their prayers as they came before God. And at just the right time, at just the right moment, God steps in. A number of years ago, my wife and I, when we were first married and we were on staff with Campus Crusade, we were raised in support. And we were in a season in our lives and we were, we were trying to get some, some money raised. And, you know, maybe you've done that and asking people for money and is a hard thing. And we went for about two or three months where almost nothing came in. And we also happened at the same two or three months to be in a very, very challenging situation which we were living. It created a lot of tension in our marriage and our lives and, and we were just it, it was hard. We had some of our biggest fights in that period of time in our marriage and we were just like ready to get out. And, and I remember just, you know, you're kind of pushing in your weight and you're going, but guess what? I couldn't make people give money to me, right? I couldn't make it happen and so we waited and we waited and finally I still remember this. Um, we were like, we, you know, I don't know how much longer we can stay in this situation. And then, within a week period of time, one week, we saw just this, we got all of our support came in. Like that. The right time, in the right way. It was like what God was saying was, at the right time, in the right way. And guess what? You're not going to get the credit for this. You're not going to get the credit. I am. His fingerprints were all over this. His fingerprints as he steps into those situations displays his glory and reminds us who he is. So we see how we live out this reality of his control, his sovereignty in our lives, in our immediate narratives, the stories of our lives. There's mystery and confusion that deepens our theology. There's irony as the finite intercedes on behalf of the finite and tries to have the gaps filled in, but it doesn't look very pretty. We don't get it right. We make all kinds of mistakes, and yet God takes the prayers of humans, of finite people, offered to Him and says, I'm going to use them in a powerful way to bring about my plan. Finally, the larger narrative. Let's finish this story off. There's a larger story going on because Luke, even though this immediate situation is resolved with Peter's escape, the, the broader situation is not. And we see that Herod here at the end, the last few verses, that Luke wants to make sure we see this. He's not content to leave us there. He wants to show and display that Christ is building his church and not Herod, even though his policies had not changed, that he is going to be neutralized. He's going to be stepping. He's opposing God and he'll be taking taken away from the church outside of being a threat to the church any longer, no matter how things appear, we're going to place, demonstrate, God's going to demonstrate his power. We still have James dead. We still have Peter rescued, but in hiding. But Herod's policies are still in place. And we have this account. We, know, we don't know a lot about it. We actually have an account from Josephus, the Roman historian, who, who tells us about Herod's death. Is Tyre and Sidon there. They, they come. They, want to, they need food right from the king's country, so they, but they're at odds with him, and they need to reconcile, so they get a representative, and the representative comes, and they have some sort of a, uh, there's a procession here, some sort of gathering. The, the king shows up, and they're trying to reconcile. On the point of day in verse 21, it says that Herod put his royal robes on, we're told very majestic kinds of robe that he would wear, took his seat in the throne, he delivered this oration to them, okay? And so this is the picture, the king Unchecked power, autonomous, majestic, 
really these people coming to him, needing what he has to give to them. No one will stand in his way, right? Immediately, the, the, no, no other power that would stand against him and these people as they come. And yet, here's the words of these folks. They hear his message and then they shout this message to him. The voice of God and not a man. Now, I don't know if that's legitimate. It's certainly flattery. I don't know if they really thought that, of course, if you needed food, you might say whatever you need to say to get your food from him. But he doesn't repudiate their call and claim and words to them. He receives them. He drinks in their flattery. And we see that's just a, a picture of him this whole time. From the beginning, he's doing what he will to oppose the church his own arrogance, his own unchecked power. And here we see that his power is checked. He's at the height and power of his glory. And it was at that point that was his undoing. And in a moment, he's taken out. In a moment, he's gone. Just like that, that situation from Nebuchadnezzar, right? The moment as he's surveying all that he had built in Babylon, boom. That's not going to go so well. Your response, sorry, that, that, the outcome isn't good here. The minute we start to claim anything that is God's, and especially in this case, God sees fit to strike him down. His power, it appeared that his power and glory were unstoppable in an earthly way. But God punctuated his reign. He struck him down. He was eaten by worms and he breathed his last. <laughs> Three ways we're told he died. Struck down by the angel eaten by worms. We're not so sure what that means. There's a real gross picture I won't paint for you about that. It could be a figurative one as well. Just a really bad way to die. And he breathed his last. We're told, Josephus tells us that he, he keeled over at the ceremony, was taken back to his palace. Five days later, he died. We don't know how, but we do know how, don't we? We know how he died. He was judged by God because he opposed God. Any power that stands itself up against God is a facade. It's a fraud. It appears to be the case. It's an illusion of the enemy that he would use. In the end, God will not stand for men impersonating him. And at just the right time, he will reveal his control, his power, he will unpack and unfold his story, his narrative, what he is accomplishing. And all who stand in his way will be neutralized or brought into that plan. And in the end, we have a complete reversal. From the beginning of the story of fear, confusion, what's going to happen to Herod is gone. He is out of the picture. And unchecked power is checked by God. And then verse 24. But, okay, that's where Luke says, don't miss this. This is the story. But the Word of God, Christ ruling and reigning from the right hand of the Father, increased and multiplied. The Word, the church, would grow. It would not be squelched. It would not be stopped. Though some killed, some imprisoned. In midst of mystery and confusion. In the midst of irony of not knowing what God is going to do or not do or what to, how to respond in the midst of seeing him respond in supernatural ways, it would not be stopped. So the beauty here as we look at this story, what does it look like for us? One, we have to connect the larger and the smaller story, what he's doing. 
prayer is the way we do that. It deepens our understanding. We live as finite people, but we know that our prayers are not finite. And yet we get to see God at work in in our lives in ways that cannot be refuted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're we're grateful as your people. We, We see ourselves in these pages. Maybe we see ourselves too closely and clearly, but we ask that our given situations, many of us, and situations of where we're perplexed, there's a mystery of what you are doing. Would you meet us there? Would you call us to this prayer to intercede? Would you use this beauty, this wonderful opportunity we have to come before you in our lives to grow us, to bring pleasure to you, and to accomplish your purposes on earth. Join us in this. Father, give us your eyes to see what you're doing, even though the particulars aren't filled in, that we would live as those who live with a vision of, 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 of your ultimate victory. And we would live by faith, no matter what the immediate circumstances might, might call us to, to see. And to see through the lies of the enemy that does want to destroy and steal. And help us to live in the truth of your power over spiritual powers and any authority that sets itself up against you. Father, many needs we have in our church. And I entrust them to you today. Grow us up as your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.